Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 394. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 394 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated mastering engineer Mike Tucci, based in Los Angeles, California. Mike has worked with a number of people, including Corey Henry, Living Color, Doja Cat, Chris Brown, Young Thug, and Unstoppable Death Machines. And although he's currently based in Los Angeles, he actually got his start at MasterDisc in New York City, which we're going to talk all about. So, very excited to have him on, Mike Tucci, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about who is professional. I'm willing to bet that in many of your minds, when I say, you know, professional audio person or audio professional, many of you think of the usual suspects out there. The the folks that appear at Mix with the Masters who are on Pure Mix, the ones that are in the ads. And you, and you might think, well, I'm not professional because I don't do audio as a full-time thing. It's only one aspect of what I do. Maybe you have a day job and maybe you only do audio at night or on the weekends. Or maybe you do audio throughout the week, but you also have other gigs that you do because you're doing my favorite thing, diversification, right? Well, I'm willing to argue that if you are being paid for what you do in audio and you're not doing it for free, I mean, maybe you do the occasional free gig, but you're on, for the most part, being paid for what you do, you are still a professional. I mean, isn't that the idea of being of a professional, one who gets paid for the work that they do? Why would you be any less professional than those other folks. And I'm talking about, you know, many people I, I know, many people I don't. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, like the CLAs of the world, Andrew Sheps, Vance Powell, Bob Clearmountain, you know, all all the usual suspects out there that you see all the time that are doing, you know, a lot of high level work uh, or, or, or work that is commercially very popular, we'll say. Who's to say that you aren't professional, even though maybe you have another job or you're doing two or three other things in addition to your audio work? I mean, seriously, if you are being paid and you're doing the work, then in my mind, that is a professional. Are you doing it full time? Maybe not. Are you in a magazine ad? Maybe not. That doesn't mean you're less professional. So. This is really meant for a lot of you out there who some of you have written me and you've said, you know, I aspire one day to, you know, be at this point because for now I'm not really, you know, that professional. It's like, I don't know. I would argue with you that that's not exactly true. You know, I mean, obviously this is meant to encourage you, but it's also meant to, I don't know, bring a different viewpoint here to the table. Um, you know, Working Class Audio does have some famous people on here, but we do have a lot of people that none of you have ever heard of. 
or very few of you have ever heard of. And the concept on this show is to just highlight those who are working in the trenches. And if the working in the trenches is part-time, that's okay. That's still cool. There's, there's uh, nothing unprofessional about that. And, you know, maybe you're at the point where, you know, the day job is bringing 80% of the money and, and or 90% of the money. And, or maybe it's bringing 100% of the money and, you know, the money that audio brings in is just gravy. You're still charging and you're still doing a great job. To me, that's still professional. Now, maybe it's not full time, but did we ever say that you have to do it full time to be considered professional? Uh, I don't think so. So take heart, my friends, if you are working those day gigs, if you're diversifying and, you know, maybe you're maybe you're playing drums in a band on the side, maybe you're working at a, at a coffee shop for part of the time and audio is the third leg on, you know, the whole thing. Uh, or whatever you want to call it. It's it's one of the, the pillars of what you do, but it's not the full-time thing you do. I would say as long as you're charging for it, that is still professional in my mind. Now, can you take it up a notch? Sure, you could do it full-time, but maybe you're not at that point yet. Maybe you don't have a big enough client base to do that, but that still doesn't mean you're not professional. In some ways, if you think about it, if you're doing it full-time, and the work starts to get a little dry and the money starts to get a little thin, it's kind of hard to come back down and go get a day job to offset things. It's a lot easier to move up than it is to come down, right? So maybe it's, I'm not telling you not to aspire to do audio full-time, but you know, in some respects, it can be the perfect combination for how your life works to do it part-time and however much of a percentage it occupies of your professional life, that's up to you, of course. But, you know, no matter what that percentage is, ultimately you need to be doing what it is that fits your lifestyle, your family, your, your world. And if doing audio full-time and, you know, being gone at studios across the world or, you know, working crazy hours in the world of audio doesn't work for you, then that's okay. I guess the point is, is not only are you professional, but how you structure all those things that you do, that is really what's key to having a successful life, right? Because if you do audio, I'm sure you do it because you love it. And the other things you do help offset the lack of full-time income from that. So if that works for your world, fantastic. So that's it. Just wanted to remind you all that there is a different way to look at this, and I'm not saying it's the only way to look at it. And some of you might argue, no, no, no. You either do it full-time or you don't. Well, that's okay. You can have that opinion, and I'm not trying to you know, fight with you over it, but, but for me, this is how I view it. You're still a professional. When you show up, get paid and do the work, whether that's full-time or part-time. Do what makes you happy and structure your life the way it works best professionally, personally, etc. And stay professional. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. 
What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Mike Tucci here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. We have a lot to discuss. I know that uh, you're based in LA currently, and, yep. uh, but, but I want to get back to some of your roots, which I think takes us back to New York, if I'm correct. New York, New York. Hell yeah. So is that, is that where you grew up? Yeah, I grew up in Queens, which is, you know, I, I grew up in a town called Flushing, which is like the last stop on the seven train. Okay. And, you know, it makes getting into Manhattan really easy because it's just one train line and you're right there in Times Square. And incidentally, that's where MasterDisc is based out of, you know. What's significant about Flushing? Um, well, it's known for, you know, having the World's Fair. Um, hmm. It's also where the Mets play baseball. And um, I think it was actually, you know, when Queens was first, you know, settled by John Bowne. I think, you know, most of it was just called, it was either Flushing or like Forest Hills. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a pretty historic part of New York if you really trace its history back. A lot of really cool, you know, Queens 
music like Simon and Garfunkel's from Queens, Kiss is from Queens, you know, Run DMC, you know, Public Enemy. Um, so it goes, it spans, you know, from punk rock to hip hop, which is, you know, it's just pretty much my pedigree, you know. So uh, growing up, what was music like in your household from your, from your siblings or family? What, what role did that play? The music at home was, there wasn't really any like, you know, here, listen to this. It was more like discovering things on my own. Like mm. MTV was huge, right? And then once I started expressing, you know, interests in like, you know, Nirvana and like Led Zeppelin and stuff, then my dad broke out his record collection and, you know, he had the first pressing of the first Black Sabbath album. You know, all the Led Zeppelin albums, Pink Floyd, so... You know, he was really into rock music and it wasn't until I showed, you know, an interest in any of it that he kind of was like, well, here's, check out this record collection. My mom is Puerto Rican. So, you know, we were, you know, she, there was always like, you know, salsa, merengue happening, you know, either in the house or during the holidays, like that's what would be playing. The first kind of music I actually really loved was, was rap music because my cousin Javier would burn me CDs and like he was an artist and he would you know draw the album covers for me you know this is when like you could burn a CD it was kind of new you know right and he would just burn me like you know Cypress Hill and Wu-Tang and Dre and Snoop and all the stuff and he was like don't tell your mom about it you know? <laughs> <laughs> his, 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 his mom was my mom's sister and you know they were like just keep this a secret and I'll keep giving them to you I was like alright sounds good but you know rap music to me sounded so cool and it was different from rock music and like, you know, the Ramones and stuff like that because it was like, well, what's the band? You know, you know, the Ramones or, you know, Zeppelin, there's like the guitarists, you know, Jimmy Page or Hendrix. And you know what each person's doing in rap music. It's like back then it was like, all right, I know Flava Flav and I know his voice, but who's making all these other sounds? Right. You know, it was like kind of like a mystery to me. And I thought that was so cool the way, you know, all those sounds are being used and created. In a, in a different way that a, that a band would create those sounds and make their songs. So I always, you know, rap music, I was like, kind of like, you know, didn't really understand, you know, sampling machines or, you know, MPCs or anything at that point. But I knew it was different than going in a room with three or four other people and going one, two, three, four, and, you know, right. starting a song, you know. If I'm correct, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole front part of your life was spent in music before recording or mixing or mastering or, pro or production actually came into full view for you. Is that accurate? Yeah, I started my musical journey playing in bands. You know, I think the first show I ever played was like I was in seventh grade or something. And then like once I got into high school, me and my brother played in bands together forever. And we would, you know, we if you go to the CBGB's, you know, where CBGB's used to be located, it's now a John Varvatos store. Yeah. But they still have the same AC vent from CB's. And if you go all the way to the back and you look up on the AC vent, you'll see my band stickers still up there. Huh. So, like, I was playing CB's. You know, my brother was playing CB's before he was even in high school. So we were just, like, these young kids just playing in bands, like, going around, you know. And we would always be in the city. And that's pretty much like a, you know, a formative point of my life, being in a band, making songs, recording them somehow. You know, there are different ways we used to do it. Was it a big deal for you 
and or your brother to be going into the city on your own? At what point did your, your parents say, yeah, 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 you could take the train and go in on your own? I don't think my mom was ever like, okay, go. It was always like, where are you going? Right. <laughs> we were just like, you know, we were just, we were crazy kids. Um, we, we were pretty, you know, we weren't bad kids, but we just literally, if we wanted to do something, we went out and did it. The train station wasn't far from our house, so it's like, you know, walk or bus, or and then, you know, 40 minutes later, you're in Times Square, or you could take the 6 to Grand Central and jump downtown to Astor Place, you know, which was another pretty cool area. That's where the Continental used to be. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a big deal at all. It was pretty easy, you know, that New York is great because the subways are there, and you can go from, you know, Queens to Manhattan to Brooklyn on two trains, you know. That was a big deal for you in the, in the uh, when you first started doing it, right? Like, going to the city and being like, whoa, this is not where we live. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that was the best part of the city. That's the exact <laughs> reason we went. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's the age difference between you and your brother? I'm two years older. Okay. So, yeah, but not that much of a difference. And, you know, we were like partners in crime together. You know, all the bands we ever played in, he was playing drums in, and I played either guitar or bass. And, you know, it's been like that for, you know, pretty much our entire lives. Like I yeah, actually started playing drums first and he played guitar and then we kind of somehow switched over and, you know, he's one of the best drummers that I've ever played with and probably one of the only drummers I can play with. There's not a lot of other bands that I've been in where he wasn't behind the drum kit, you know. There was a connection and our last band was a two-piece kind of like noise punk band called Unstoppable Death Machines. And that was basically him playing drums and me playing bass. And I had a whole pedal board of uh, effect pedals, like distortions and delays and stuff. And, you know, loopers and shifters and octave pedals and stuff. We took these car tweeter speakers and rewired them and put straps around them so that we wouldn't have to have a microphone and a mic stand. We could just strap this speaker, this car tweeter around our face. <laughs> we ran it through a, a rat distortion pedal. And maybe a you know a delay or whatever other kind of effect, and that was our vocal sound. It was just like this kind of like super fuzzed out CB radio kind of a effect. I I really liked that because I hated being like a a slave to a microphone stand, right? And just having always to go back <laughs> to oh I got to sing my part. Let me run over to the you know this way. You know we were just all over the place. Um, even if we were crowd surfing or my brother would take the drums into the crowd and the crowd would hold up the drums and he would be crowd surfing and playing drums. It was just, you know, it gave us a lot of freedom that was pretty amazing. And, you know, Unstoppable Death Machines, I think, was probably my one of my more favorite bands that I've ever played in because we did a bunch of different things that were unconventional and, and had a lot of fun and also a decent amount of, like, minor success with it. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty fun. Tell me about over the course of the time playing with your brother in the various bands that you've been in, did you have any recording experiences of note that that stuck with you, you know, positive or negative? Or did the majority of your recording take place in a DIY fashion on your own? No, we always went to studios because we always understood the importance of that. Mm. Um, we always, you know, if we were recording while we were practicing, it was usually on like a Magnavox with a tape inside mm -hmm. you know, just, <laughs> with the condenser and just capture the room, move it closer, move it further over here, over there. And, you know, we would record our demos that way. 
And then later it was like the uh, Roland Virtual Studio with the with the zip disk. <laughs> and then we went to a studio and the first time we ever experienced kind of like a studio with Pro Tools, it was kind of like, I remember the engineer being like, this is what Madonna uses to record. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I n- I'll wow. never forget that. I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, we recorded this whole thing. And by the end of it, you know, he mixed it pretty quick. And we had our four song, whatever, five song thing. And it was like, this is, this is amazing. This is, <laughs> this is what you need to do. So we always knew like, you know, we could do it ourselves or we can go somewhere and work with someone who actually knows what they're doing. So we always saw the value in, in like taking the time and spending whatever money or energy to capture things properly because I don't know what part of my mind or personality gravitated towards like understanding that, you know, once you record something and put it on a piece of vinyl or a CD or whatever, it could theoretically be there forever. Mm-hmm. Like someone could find this record 50, 60, 70 years later, put it on a turntable and listen to some music that we made. And we always made it a point to never just, oh, we just record it and forget about it. It was always like, no, let's go finish the process, like record it, mix it, master it, press it, sell it if we can, and if, you know, whatever. If we can't, give them away, whatever. So we always understood that there was a sort of um, reverence. I don't know. Yeah. We understood that it was, it was important to do things right as, you know, if we were taking this seriously as artists. And I don't think we even realized we were taking it seriously as artists at the time. It was just like, this is what you do. Right. (laughs) Go to a studio and you record, you know, it's, I don't know, it was a tradition or what, but we kind of like, we're on that kind of a wavelength pretty early on. I've been going through this a lot lately where I hear music of a person who's no longer with us. Uh, in fact, I think the last time it, it really struck me, I was listening to David Bowie and I was just thinking, wow, I mean, this will be listened to years, years beyond his death. And, and I wonder if he thought about that thoroughly before he died. Yeah. And I think maybe that kind of thing came into my mind as I was listening to, you know, stuff like The Doors and Jimi Hendrix and, you know, later on, when Kurt Cobain died, it was their work outlasted their their lives. And there was something about that. And I think that's what kind of made me move more towards, you know, music as opposed to, even though I, you know, I'd done visual arts, but, you know, mostly music, because I think at the same time, a song can reach someone who's, you know, homeless on the corner Mm -hmm. and still reach, you know, the president of the United States of America. It's something that can touch anyone anywhere and it could you know it could be ingrained in your mind forever too if you know that's all never escape your mind sometimes and it was all of that that kind of attracted me to to like the power of music i was just always like attracted to that kind of universality i think in those early days were you paying attention to the process of recording did any of that catch your attention or were you just focused on like no let this guy do it i'll 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 pay attention to the music there's a part of my personality where i gotta know you know i have to (laughs) (laughs) i gotta understand and if i don't understand i'll understand it if i don't under if i can't figure it out now i'll have it figured out later Uh, there's just something in me that needs to know everything um (laughs) i went to college for the same reason i knew I i went to college and i didn't really major in anything other than like literature and creative writing because in my mind the best way to to learn the most amount of things 
would be to read books because through a book, you have to understand, you know, multiple aspects of the work to understand it, right? You have to understand the zeitgeist, where it was written, by who it was written, the psychology at the time, economics at the time. So just to really fully understand like a novel, you have to, there's more extensive um, aspects to kind of contextualize it and understand it for, you know, the true art that it's being portrayed. And to me, I just want to learn stuff because I knew I was going to do music somehow. Mm -hmm. I don't know how, maybe in a band, who knew, whatever. I just knew I was going there and I'm just going to go to school just to, I don't know, just to be a wise ass, you know, <laughs> just to be good at, just to be good at Jeopardy or something. <laughs> That's always important to be good at Jeopardy. <laughs> well, at any point in the recording process, did you ever start to think, I think I want to do something like this. I want to be involved deeper into the process of making records other than, you know, outside of being an artist, but being on the production side. Yeah, I think maybe that one time where, you know, his name was Adam Frawworth and he had a studio in Long Island somewhere. And just seeing him do that, I think he had the studio out of his mother's house. Whatever Adam's doing, this is really cool. And the fact that he was helping you know, kids like us at the time, I thought that was cool. You know, yeah. it was like, we're nobodies, but this guy's here doing this, helping us. And that's pretty awesome that this exists. And, you know, I do know the part where, or the moment where, you know, me going into mastering happened. But I think for me at the time, when it was early on, we were playing in bands, it was just important for me to understand how to do things on my own because I just needed to know that stuff. And maybe it would make things easier for whoever was recording us the next time or something. And it's not that there was a mistrust or anything like that. I like learning. I don't know. I just mm -hmm. wanted to know how to do all this stuff and what is it that you're doing and why and for what reasons, you know. Uh, I was just a curious kid, you know. Had you ever contemplated being a recording engineer i've yeah i mean i was a recording engineer um but not in the professional sense of how i'm a mastering engineer these days right but i was always you know we would always record ourselves and it was always important to learn how to record things and there was an early producer his name is dave mack he he died maybe like seven or eight years ago he was a blues guy but he had a, a show on sirius like a blues show on the radio back in the day when the series kind of started. We were introduced to him by these, I don't know, I guess they were lawyers and like publishers or something. And they introduced us to this dude, Dave, and he would come all the way from like Red Bank, New Jersey to all the way out to Queens to like write songs with us and like help us produce. And like, we made some really, really, really good music with him. And I think beyond that, we learned a lot from him. Because he was like, this is how you do it. And we're like, wow, Dave's coming to our basement, setting up microphones, you know, recording. We had the, the Roland Virtual Studio at the time. He showed us how to use that. And I remember like trying to finish songs with him and he was just always busy. And I think maybe out of there somewhere and him not being able to show up all the time and us just wanting to move forward, I think maybe that pushed us in a way to like, let's figure this out mm. because, you know, people aren't always going to be available and it's good to know how to do this on our own. I don't know if that's where it came from or, or what, but you know, I learned a lot from different people along the way. Bob Stander is another person who I've really learned a lot from. And he's a, one of these really amazing engineers and producers 
he's out in Long Island too. And he had a studio in Queens called Avalon. And I remember hearing these records from these local bands and like on cassettes and CDs and stuff. And I was just like, these records sound amazing. They sound like real records. <laughs> I was like, who did these? And you'd look on the back, recorded at Avalon. And it was always Bob. And this dude, Bob was like, he, he basically mixed all of the Unstoppable Death Machines records because I just loved his vibe. And he made us, he knew what we were going for. He was like into Frank Zappa, you know, and, and, and uh, Captain Beefheart were like his super favorite artists. And he thought we were just as crazy as those, hmm. those artists. Like, he's like, I love what you guys are doing. This is nuts. <laughs> I was like, cool, you get it. And, you know, he, he taught a lot while, you know, while he's mixing, he would show me what he was doing. And I was like, really grateful for, you know, everything he showed us and not even just showing us like, hey, look what I'm doing. Just being there and observing his process and everything like, he was very analog. He had a whole API desk and, you know, he would run things through his board and he would always be like, I love API. API is the best. <laughs> he like loves API. But, you know, guy, just being around people like that, you just kind of pick things up and at times it made you more curious to, to want to learn more. Yeah. Tell me about uh, discovering mastering and, and having that become a major part of your identity. I worked out of Brooklyn for a while and this engineer and producer, his name's Jay Braun. He's like one of the most brilliant producers I've ever met. And he was a good friend of mine. And one day we're just working on this record for my band. And he just kind of turns to me and says, you know, you'd be a good mastering engineer. And, you know, at the time I was like, oh yeah, cool. Like, what is that? <laughs> How do you do that? Because <laughs> I knew producing, recording, mixing, but never really knew a mastering engineer or even met one. Mm-hmm. Jay had done some records with his band. They were called the Negatones. And the Negatones drummer was, um, was uh, Jesse, Jesse Wallace. And Jesse's dad is Andy Wallace. Uh-huh. So Andy mixed one of the Negatones albums once and Howie mastered it. And Jay was just like, you should just go, you know, go to MasterDisc and talk to Howie or somebody. Like, just tell him you know everybody. And I was like, well, I guess. And I just wrote an email to MasterDisc. I was like, hey, what's up? This is who I am. Uh, and they just responded through the email and said, hey, you know, come for an interview. And that was it. Like, I showed up for the interview and Scott was like, when do you want to start? I said, I'll start right now. And he just took out a piece of paper and <laughs> wrote down this address and he said, go here. And so I walked over. It was the building, you know, where daddy's house was. I can't remember the address. Birdland is right there. Right. And that, and uh, I go up <laughs> and I like, walk through the door there's no receptionist in the front it's really just like you know pretty chill and i see all the plaques i see you know rancid metallica nirvana and i'm like oh shit i fucking i'm with howie and then howie right. pops out hey what's up are you the new guy <laughs> right <laughs> and what's that was up? it and i was like i was in it and i was like this is there's no you know it just kind of happened that way and when someone says something to you and then you just put yourself out there and the result is that which the exact thing they were speaking about. It's kind of just like when the world lines up like that, you kind of just have to like walk through the door and just go with it because it's pretty rare when things line up like that. And, you know, I was grateful, you know, that Scott gave me the opportunity to be a part of it. And, you know, it wasn't all, you know, at, at, at a certain point, Howie was like, I'm leaving, I'm going to LA, whatever. And then that was like, 
I saw the writing on the wall. I was like, they're not going to need me anymore. I was like, I'm gonna, they're going to can me. They there's no need for me, right? So I go to Scott and I was like, hey, you know, I think I can do this and I know I can get clients. And Scott says, hmm, all right, let me think about it. And then he hits me up a few days later. He's like, come meet Andy Vandette. Uh, you're going to team up with him. And I met Andy and Andy's the man. He's, he was my mentor. He was my, you know, the Jedi master to my Padawan or whatever. And he was an extremely patient, understanding and caring person. And he, he was like, okay, well, I like your vibe. We can get along. And we got along pretty good. He took his time to explain things to me. I was never the one to be like, what are you doing now? What's this? What's that? Why are you doing this? I would just really let him do his thing and observe and you know, in the beginning, it was like, do you have any questions? <laughs> and I was like, well, actually, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, Andy was the man. And, you know, I got the clients. The first album I ever brought in was, um, came on half-inch tape from Steve Albini. And Scott opened the studio. He was like, are these for you? <laughs> I was like, oh, I think, I think so. <laughs> it said electrical audio. I was like, oh, yeah, this is my album. And he's like do this with Andy. And then like two weeks later, he got me like business cards and put me on the website and stuff. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Step back for a bit, uh, back to Howie. What were you doing with Howie? Were you assisting him? No, I was hanging out with Howie. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, hey, come hang out. Okay. I was like the intern at the time. You know, he had a main assistant, this dude, Matt, who was constantly frustrated. But Howie would just be like, come hang out with me. <laughs> and he would just listen to this. And his shit, he listened so loud. I was like, I had to stop going in there when he was like, come listen to this. But, you know, we just, it was more like, hey, what's up? And it was just really, I was just the intern. Um, get me this, help me with that, move this, whatever. Howie's cool, you know. He was just a cool guy, and I liked being around him. I thought he was hilarious. Oh, he's I totally he was, hilarious. I thought he was one of the coolest guys ever. 
What was the takeaway from Howie in terms of the craft of mastering? What do you think about when you think of Howie and mastering in your time with him? You know, at that point, I was like so new that I didn't know what. I was just like watching him. I, I couldn't really learn any. I didn't really know what he was doing at the time. You know, I knew what was there and I knew something about it. But, you know, I didn't know if a piece of gear was in or out in the chain or whatever. Like, I didn't know his system. I didn't know his console. From his energy, I understand what he does because if you ever meet him, you'll understand that's what he sounds like, kind of, right? It's like the way you sound is kind of analogous to your personality, I think. And how he's a super energetic guy and his masters kind of are mirrors of him, I think. And I think that's that's the case with a lot of people. I think that's the mm. case with everyone, I think. I think people go to you because you are you, you know, not because you can make something sound this way or that way. And, you know, I never really tried to have a sound. You know, I don't even know if I really tried to go that far into it because I don't I think you already have it in you already. I think it comes out of your work. Tell me about MasterDisc and, and, you know, from your time there, what are the key takeaways? The key takeaways for me was that, so by the end of it all, it was to not be dependent on a studio mm. and to not be dependent on someone else's gear and to not be dependent on really anything. Because if a studio like MasterDisc can go out of business and just disappear, then really nobody's safe. And this was in New York, you know, out here in LA, there's big studios that are still going. But in Manhattan, they were kicking people out like crazy because the rents were going nuts. But there were probably also other reasons why Master just closed, but mostly the real estate, I think. And for me, like when Hurricane Sandy happened, it blew up like some gear, like the studer didn't work anymore. I think the tube tech went out, you know, it was just like, it was really kind of frustrating. Even Andy, I remember him being frustrated. He was like, oh, they, don't want to, they don't want to fix it. I don't know how they're going to do <laughs> What if we need to do a recall? It was just like, you know, was, yeah. we're just tied to someone else's thing. And that's kind of what pushed me to go. And so, you know, after Master Disc closed, I found myself at another studio downtown. And the second I walked in there, I started planning my exit, you know, because it wasn't anywhere near like as nice or whatever state of the art as MasterDisc was. And I was just like, I can't depend on these people for anything because even though as grateful, you know, as I am for the opportunity at the same time, like how, how would I continue to do this if I wanted to do this? And for me, it was not being dependent on anyone for anything, gear, room or otherwise, you know? So it kind of put me in sort of survival mode and figuring out how I can make this work for myself. And that's kind of like partly why I turned to working in the box. Um, it was really a result of being independent and being able to adapt quickly. And I didn't know where I was going to be at the time. So I was like, maybe I was playing around with the idea of LA. So I was kind of just like getting myself ready for anything, you know? Yeah, just being completely independent, being a master of your own domain, so to speak. I think that's the biggest takeaway from working at a huge studio like that. Yeah. That doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Well, at what point did you make a decision to go to L.A.? I think it was around 2015 or something, 16. I don't know. I was always kind of attracted to the West Coast. You know, I toured and I've been in L.A. a bunch of times. So I'm, it wasn't like going somewhere completely new. I, you know, 
been here a bunch of times, like for days on end on tour. And I had a grasp of, you know, what LA is and, you know, how things are spread out here and everything. But I didn't really understand the other parts of like how it would be to actually live here. <laughs> and to an extent, you know, it was a hard change. But once things, you know, LA has this magic that where things just kind of like coagulate and just flow and kind of like culminate somehow. And it's like, I call it like slow magic because LA for me is a slow city, but in that slowness, things are able to kind of like gather together and kind of culminate into this kind of weird magic. I don't know how hmm. to explain it. Like the energy is different here than it is in New York. In New York, nothing's really slow. Everything's frantic and, you know, frenetic and it's more like a pinball machine or something. And here it's kind of like, it's like a slow wave of the ocean just kind of like swelling up, swelling up. And then it'll eventually, <laughs> when it crashes, it all kind of comes together in a yeah. weird way. And I don't know, that's what I found about LA, at least. It's, it's got some weird magic to it. Was there any kind of shock to your system because you're, you're so used to that frenetic, high energy thing? Yeah, for sure. Um, sometimes I still feel that, <laughs> you know, it's still like, oh, I can't just walk out. I mean, I live downtown. So it's kind of a little wild, but still not the same energy down here. It's still, it's, you know, it's kind of slower in general. Um, I do miss that energy, but I also learned to like this other energy and kind of make it work for me and kind of harness, you know, the calm that comes with it. What about the business of mastering? And, you know, you come from New York, you've got this background, you land in L.A., You've got this mindset of independence. What was your strategy of getting settled and establishing yourself? Yeah, um, I don't think I had one, to be honest. I think mm -hmm. it was one of those things where, you know, I have friends all over the country from being, from playing in this band and touring, you know. So I just figured, you know, I know enough people and maybe something will happen. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. I was just hanging out with my friend Yeti at his studio and... Literally, wow, this is funny because this is actually what happened. The same day, I hit up Howie. And I was like, yo, Howie, what's up? It's Mike from MasterDisc. He's like, oh, what's up? Like, yeah, I'm in LA. And he's like, come through. All right. So I go to Howie's, you know, just to check out the vibe and see his new studio. And in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, maybe if, you know, if it's chill, maybe I could ask Howie if I could work here at night or something. You know, go link up with Howie, see the studio. It's great. And I'm just like, you know what? He's just too busy. And he's all the way out in Laurel Canyon. And I was, yeah, I was living downtown at the time when I first moved out here. And, you know, I, I just left. I was like, you know, how he's doing his thing. I don't fit here. It's cool. I got to figure something else out. And I'm in like, yeah, I was, I think I was driving and, you know, Yeti calls me and he's like, hey, what's up? Yeti, hey, come through the studio. Come hang. And he was like, what were you up to? I was like, oh, I just, you know, I saw... My friend Howie, he's got a studio, and uh, I was just seeing if I could, like, maybe what the vibe was to work out of there. And he goes, oh, you should meet my friend Dimitri. I was like, yeah, what's what's up? He's like, he has a studio in the back of his house, and no one uses it. I was like, oh, yeah, well, dude, yeah, connect me. With, yeah. Probably 40 seconds later, Dimitri walks into the studio, and Dave is like, oh, I was just talking about you. <laughs> you guys got to meet. And, you know, we went to, a, you know, a bar across the street, catch a drink. And I was like, hey, man, can I get your info? And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, come through, check it out. I think I hit him up next day or two days later, checked it out. I walked in, I was like, dude, this is perfect. 
And that was it. That was my room for like, you know, in, in LA. And I did a lot of big records out of that room, all because somehow I just left it up to the world to figure it out for me to an extent, you know? I wasn't really like, I have a plan. I'm going to do A, B, C, one, two, three, this, that, the other. I was just like, if it's meant to be, it'll happen in a way. And the odds are on my side because I know a lot of people and I have, a, you know, I know a decent amount of people out here. Something will show of itself. And that's exactly, that's exactly what happened. That was like, what, 15, 16? That was 17 because when I first moved out to LA, I didn't move out to LA. I was going back to... <laughs> <laughs> I was going back to New York all the time, you know. <laughs> I hated it here. Um, and it took me a while to be like, I'm going to stay and not go back to New York for at least six months. And that was uh, the end of 2016. I moved out here and said, all right, this is what's going to happen. And I think I met Dimitri like shortly thereafter. And I was, at, I was working out of his studio for, you know, next whatever, five five or so years. Did you bring your own rig to that studio or was there stuff there? Or? He had stuff there, but I didn't use any of it. I just, I brought, I had, I had speakers, I had PMCs, set them up, pushed them out to a place where it felt good to me and just let it go. You know, I had my computer <laughs> plug-ins. I was in the box. I didn't need anything. I just right. needed a computer and some speakers and, and stuff to work on. People could say what they will about, you know, external hardware and, and the beauty of it, which, you know, I can agree with. But at the same time, you know, a hurricane can hit, hit, your, hit your studio, take your laptop out, even if you don't have a backup. Let's, let's say you had to start from scratch. You could very rapidly go out by the same laptop, download the same software, and be back exactly where you were. Yeah, There's a, the, the convenience of it is just unmistakable. It's just really, really, really helpful. Yeah, and that's what kind of made me, you know, go in that direction. I knew that, you know, if I had a rare piece of analog gear, Chris Muth could fix it like two times before he's like, this can't be fixed anymore, you know? And that's happened. Yeah, analog stuff is amazing, right? But like, there's something amazing about digital plugins too that kind of, especially if they're really good ones and they sound like, you know, or reminiscently sound like, you know, the hardware. And I don't, I don't really think it's what you're using it doesn't matter what speakers you have. It doesn't matter what gear you have. What matters are the results at the end of the day. Spike Stunt used to say that to me. He was like, it doesn't matter. It's all about results. And if your results are good, it doesn't matter how you got there. What matters is that you get there. He would always be he, constantly. He's like, it's all about the results. All about the results. And that's, that's it. You can use, you know, your home stereo parametric EQ to master a record if it if you're making it work and it sounds good, that's all that matters. And for me, that's that's all because no one's here, no one watches me work, no one's out here being like, "Oh, you're using this instead of that." And you know, I'm just here doing my work, and I put it out. The clients are happy. It's you know, the results are what, are ultimately what matters. So let me uh, let me ask you about that because you know, mastering engineers really run the gamut of approach. Some approach things as very neutral, very, I'm just, you know, here to make sure it translates to the next medium or whatever. And they're, and they're very um, uh, conservative about changes they make, EQ changes or any kind of changes whatsoever. Um, and then there are those that dig in and do some kind of next level things that 
run counter to that. Those are the two extremes in my in my mind. Where do you think you fall in that? I fall more on the latter, but I try to like not to sometimes because it depends on your client. You really got to understand who you're working with and what their tastes are like. And if, you know, for the new clients, you don't know, you just kind of do your thing. But, you know, if you're working with a mixer who likes to just hear their mix, just a little whatever, this or that fixed, you know, at that point, it's just like, there's nothing to do. Just, you know, give it back to them. But then there's people who are like, go crazy, do your thing. And like, naturally, I, I lean towards, you know, the less conservative side of things, because to a point, just put out your mix if you don't want the mastering person to touch it, you know, just, you know, there's no need for that at that point. If you're, you know, and if the people want to send me mixes where they're like, okay, just fix this here, there, whatever, sibilance, that's cool. And I'll do it. And I don't complain. Like, I don't mind. At the end of the day, I'm a facilitator as a mastering engineer, but like the artist in me and the musician in me wants to like add something all the time. And it's not even an ego thing. It's just that instinct to like, to make, to put something there that wasn't there before. And that was the entire beauty of making music was to create something that didn't exist five seconds ago, you know, and something that can't exist again, unless you play it. Right. That was the beauty of, you know, making music as an art form to me. And that never escaped me. It still hasn't, you know, I still make music and the artist in me wants to like do something to it Mm -hmm. or add something to it or elevate it somehow or, you know, so sometimes I have to catch myself. If I I know I'm working with someone who doesn't want that, then I'll have to be like, oh, okay, let me do a second pass (laughs) and see if uh, (laughs) I'm going too, too wild here, getting too carried away. But, you know, I think, and that was the part of Howie that I, I liked. He did what he wanted to do. You know, he did his thing. Even if you told him, like, oh, don't do this, like, he'll probably just be like, oh, we'll try this. And that's kind of what I do, too. People are like, oh, you know, I got some notes. I have, like, a page of notes before you even start. You know, I shouldn't say this, but I don't read those notes. I'll do my own thing first and then read their notes and say, okay, let's see if I came closer, if I missed the whole mark altogether, you know, because... I have to get that thing out of me first, like, you know, the first pass. Um, But the conservative stuff, you know, you just have to know who you're dealing with. If they want it to be, you know, a light thing, then you do a light thing. And if you know that this mixer loves it when you just dig in and, you know, push it, Mm -hmm. then you do, you know, then you do that. It's just really knowing who your client is and and what they want and anticipating what their vision is. Have you ever had the, you know, Oh my God, what have you done? I, I just wanted you to do this, like push back on, on doing your thing. Um, not really. Um, sometimes we'll just say, you know, a little louder or you know, <laughs> a yeah. little lower sometimes, which is kind of rare, but nothing really crazy. You know, I'm not really reinventing the wheel, right? I'm just kind of making it a little more round or perfect or something. Um, you know, the mix is there. It's really, for me, mastering is about, you know, hitting all those benchmarks, you know, making sure it plays back right and everything. But, and that's all fine. Like all the technical stuff is not really in my mind because it's all, all right, this, that, the other thing, these are the rules. We'll keep that there. We'll follow those. But everything else is kind of open game. You mm. know, I kind of treat it, you know, as an art form or, you know, as another expression as opposed to just this clinical, you know, process of 
I'm not going to do anything except for minus one at this. It's like, at that point, it's negligible. You know, as a kid in the club who's dancing to the song, really going to notice, you know, I took out one dB at 3K. No. Right. That's exactly right. It matters how it feels at the end of the day. And if I'm catching myself like nodding my head, I'm always, if I'm doing some kind of physical movement, I tapped it, you know, and that's kind of what I go for. If there's a physical response from me, I know I'm, I'm doing something right. Um, it's all feel as opposed to to mathematics, at least for me. And do you keep your your setup fairly fairly uh, nimble, fairly small? Yeah, definitely. Just some speakers, a computer. You know, I got my converter here. Um, it's really easy. Yeah, I try to make the simpler things are for me, the better. Because at this point, even if I had an analog, if I was all analog, I would I would probably stop just out of um, using analog gear just out of pure necessity to just keep things moving, you know? Yeah. I, I need to constantly just move on to the next thing. Um, I don't have a lot of time to go back and analog recall and real-time passes, you know? I, I can't do that. I can't go back to that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk business for a sec. Financial philosophy as an audio professional and, and you know, trying to survive. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? What works for you? What doesn't? I would say, you know, keeping your overhead down is important. You know, I have some friends who are paying thousands of dollars a month for a studio. And that, you know, is like about $40,000 a year. Hmm. You know, if you add it up, that's a lot of money. For five years, you know, that's you're at 200. I think y you can do good work anywhere these days. I think you can do good work in your basement. You can do good work in your living room. You can do good work in a studio. Again, it doesn't matter like what or even where at this point. It just what, all, the only thing that matters are the results. If your results are good and you know you're doing hits, you're killing it. It all sounds good. It's on the radio. That's all that matters. You know the process is ultimately, you know, no one's there for it. The only thing that matters is what you're doing at the end of the day. I think. Where do you prefer to work these days? Right now, I'm working out of my loft in downtown because it's nice and bright. It's open. It sounds good in here. It's so much easier to just, you know, get things done. I have more time for myself now, you know. The hour and a half that I would sit in traffic, going to the studio. Mm. Now I spend, you know, an hour, like, working out and exercising and having, you know, 20 minutes to just sit down and just do nothing you know yeah. as opposed to sitting in traffic and whatever it's like a waste of time so i think working from home is kind of underrated i think you can get a lot done you know and also discipline yourself so that you know when to walk away you know to not work anymore because i've noticed i can go like 10 hour 12 hour days and not even realize it but yeah there's a certain level of you know discipline turning the work mode off but hmm. at the same time there's a level of comfort and you know, at the end of the day, you know, the results are good. You know, no one, no one's ever said, hey, what happened? <laughs> you know, do you ever have clients that are like, hey, I want to come over and be part of it? Sometimes. Yeah. That's a rare thing these days. And that's oh, been yeah. like a rare thing. You know, even, even like three or four years ago, it was kind of a rare thing. The people who come through are like, you know, my friends, people I work with all the time. You know, if like someone on Instagram messages me, hey, man, can I come through? Like, no, you can't. Because I'm not trying to have like 
a revolving door. You know, if we're coming to work and I know you, we work together all the time, or no, you know, you're an A and R at the label and we have a relationship. Yeah, they come through and that's fine because mm-hmm. it can host. It can host people. It's big enough space. You know? And how do you find that most of the work comes to you? That's a good question. Um, I think either word of mouth, artists themselves request me. Mm-hmm. You know, the man. Sometimes the manager is like, "Oh, we're using Tooch." Sometimes the producer or the mixer. Sometimes it's the label. It it comes from all over. It's it's hard to say which one is greater than the other. They all seem to be about you know equal paths, but um. It comes from all directions, which is pretty cool, as opposed to just having like only labels hit you up. You know, it's you know, it's word of mouth, past credits. I've had people, hey, I heard you did this one. Can you work with me? So it comes from all over, which is great. Is, does social media play a, a major part of that? I feel like it does. Like I think maybe in the last, I don't know, year or two, maybe the internet has come into like more of a a, a, a flow of income, but um. I don't even know what percentage that would be. It would be pretty low. Mm. Yeah. I, I just post, you know, things that I worked on. It's like a blog for me, just like a personal one, just so I could scroll through them, recall my year. <laughs> like, right, oh, yeah, exactly. I did this one. Yeah. <laughs> if people are like using it as like a source of anything, I don't, it's really a source for myself, to be honest. Well, thank you so much, Mike. It's nice to meet yeah. you finally. Um, I'm glad that you could make time for me. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, you take care. Appreciate you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Mike Tucci here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion, head on over to workingclassaudio.com. There is a special form just for that very thing. But uh, make a guest suggestion and we'll consider your guest suggestion. How about that? That's how it works. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and that voice at the top of the show that you hear every time, that's Chuck Smith, the great Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.